Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. It's been a really busy few weeks recently. I've been working on scripts for main shows, some minisodes, and of course, the Christmas special. I'll tell you more about what's coming up at the end of the show, as well as doing some listener reviews and news. We've had an influx of listeners recently, which is great. So if you are new and this is your first episode, that's fine. You can listen to this one as a standalone without knowing much backstory. I do recommend going back and listening to the main episodes from at least episode 13, The Eruption of Mount Tambora, or episode 17, The Peterloo Massacre, after this. Then dip into the minisodes once you've caught up. Or if you really like what you hear, you can just go on an epic binge of the hours of content so far. We've got everything from Dickens to gin to volcanoes to royalty to art. Think of this as Netflix for the soul. Now, let's get going. I promised that we would start looking at a series of quakes that changed the world. So let's start with a biggie. The British Industrial Revolution and the coming of the age of steam and railways. To my mind... It is one of the most important events in human history and is therefore one of our smallest quakes. I hope that makes you sit up and think. After all, if this enormous series of events is our smallest earthquake, what have I got up my sleeve for the others? In the last few shows, you've heard how Victoria grew up and came to the throne with a deep dive in the politics, the 1820s, and 1830s. Politically, the UK was tired. The Tories and the ailing Hanoverian monarchs were desperately holding back the political tide for voting rights and tackling rampant inequality. The Whigs had their own problems around reform and their support base. The political events between 1815 and 1830 were marked by resistance to change but politicians aren't always in charge of events, however much they like to pretend otherwise. The earthquake that was going to shape the world was underway. If politics couldn't or wouldn't change the country, then there were great forces at work that would. Britain, uniquely, was undergoing one of the most astonishing changes in the history of civilization. Britain was going through a massive industrial revolution, and an agricultural one. It was about to break the energy ceiling of agrarian pre-industrial societies. This was not a given. No other advanced society, not even the Chinese, had actually achieved lift-off and broken through this energy ceiling. What do we mean when we say energy ceiling? Well, basically, to do anything costs energy even using energy. Everything a society or people do ultimately comes down to energy. People get their direct energy from food, but everything from growing food to painting to religion to decorating homes to making clothes requires energy. You can either use the energy in the thing itself, for instance sitting on a sleigh 
and letting it slide down a hill, or you can add energy to something from another source, like piling up coals and using them to melt iron. A society can generate a certain amount of energy each year using the power sources it has access to. That is the ceiling of what it can do with existing power sources. Basically, this is the gross amount of energy available. It is a bit like your gross income. Pre-industrial societies were tied to the energy they could produce from growing food, water, wind, animal and charcoal power. Most of that energy was actually food converted into muscle power. When you realise this, you realise why earlier societies often developed and stopped developing technologically. They hit the energy ceiling for their population and geography. Some people, notably Professor Thaklav Smell, sociologist Leslie White and Fred Cottrell, ecologist Howard Odom, and economist Nicholas Georgescu Rogan have said that the history of civilization is actually the history of energy. The addition of industrial coal on a large scale added a new kind of energy to the British society that increased their energy ceiling. Underneath the energy ceiling is a concept called ENROI, energy return on investment. Basically, this is how much energy you need to get more energy. For example, the energy to feed the farmer who grows the food to feed the farmer. The surplus energy feeds his family and then wider society. No surplus, no food for wider society. The energy to build things and feed the people who build the things to create the energy. This is the energy return on investment, your net amount of energy. The more efficient your system is, the better your return on energy is, so you can tweak these numbers around a bit. But simply, if you need almost as much energy to get your fuel out of the ground as you get from it, then it's hardly worth doing. Growing onions is easier than raising a cow. But the energy return means you probably need to go down the cow route. Otherwise, you are spending a lot of energy just to eat a low-energy food. Lovely as French onion soup is. The building block. (coughs) Don't forget that the energy return on investment needs to track the total energy used from extraction to use, not just the energy used to extract it. Let's have a look at coal, the building block of Victorian power. If you want to know energy return on investment, you just need to know the total energy available from coal, then how much it costs in energy to dig it up, transport it and use it. Otherwise, you will think it costs less energy to get energy from coal than it actually does. You have to account for as much as you can. This gives you your net energy. It's sort of like your net income, with extraction being like taxes on your income. Just like with taxes, you can do things to pay less. You can't get away from it. That means you have to be sure the energy cost is worth what you're getting in return, which usually in the energy industry 
is actually a financial calculation. After all, most companies use money as a quick valuation of energy. It might cost me, say, £100 to buy a tonne of coal to fuel a steam engine to extract 500 tonnes of coal. I'm getting a good envoy and a good profit. Victorians like Anne Lister, aka Gentleman Jack, were acutely aware of the needs for what they would have called profitability or viability of a coal pit. They knew in great detail costs of setting up the mines versus the rents from keeping the land as farmland or buying coal from elsewhere. Barges shipped coal from Newcastle to the Thames to feed the endless fires of London. The Industrial Revolution created job after job, but there never quite enough in the right places at living wages. Next up is the concept of thermal efficiency, and that is how effective a technology is turning the energy source into something useful. You can improve the efficiency up to a set limit, and if you hit the efficiency limit of your system, you can only pass that limit by switching to a source of energy that has denser potential energy. So, again with our money analogy, this is how good you are at turning the money into something useful. If your net income is in pennies, it's much harder to use than if it is in £10 notes. This can change the calculation of your energy return on investment, since Envoy is a whole usage calculation, not a point of extraction only calculation. I know this, this all sounds a bit technical, but actually those aren't really that difficult concepts and they really are quite important. Think of it like this. You can build a sailing boat. Pretend it is 30% efficient turning wind power into motion. That's incredible, but you want more. So you streamline the ship's hull, then improve the sails, then add new processes for handling her. Eventually, you reach a sleek form like the Cutty Sark, the legendary clipper ship that could fly as fast as her mythical namesake. Pretend it is now 45% efficient, converting energy from the wind into useful motion. But you are now at the ceiling. This boat is as good as it is going to get. You are at peak energy potential because you can't add any more wind. You are at peak energy return on investment because you are using all your human energy to get all the wind energy you can through sailors pulling ropes and so on. And you are at peak thermal efficiency because you are turning the wind into energy in the best way possible. You can't make the system more efficient because you have reached the limits of sailing ship technology. Then comes the breakthrough. You supplement the sails with steam engines. These engines are nowhere near as thermally efficient as sails. Pretend, say, 10% efficiency. But they produce more energy overall as they are from a denser energy source with more potential energy in it. And as a bonus, are more reliable than the wind. So usually they have a good envoy. There's a problem though. As Jean-Pierre Amiguis and Michel Moreau said in their paper, quote, choosing high efficiency rates requires to 
bring into operation more sophisticated energy transformation devices, that is, more costly ones, end quote. Or in plain English, the more efficiently you want to make your energy, the more complicated your machine needs to be. You can burn logs under a camp kettle easily, but with a very low level of energy efficiency. Or you can build a modern British kettle to achieve one of the pinnacles of human achievement, the cup of tea. But that modern British kettle requires plastics, electronics, an electric grid system with sensible three-pin plug sockets, a logistics system to sell it, and all the things like that. Don't forget, energy has to be used to be, well, useful. Being able to harness the power of a million suns would have been pointless to people in the 1820s, but the ability to use a high-pressure steam engine was far more practical and could be used for reciprocal motion to drive pistons. Our hypothetical ship hits the complexity issue. To get the coal, there has to be a mine, which consumes energy to dig, and then more energy to move the coal. If the coal is dug by hand, and the pit is powered by a water wheel, you will have a low energy return investment, because it's taking nearly as much energy to extract the coal as you can get from it. Steamships weren't practical in the Middle Ages, because 1. No one had the idea to propel a ship using steam. 2. There was no energy efficient way to mine and get it to the ship. But in Britain, someone has the idea to use the energy of the coal to dig up the coal. Coal is a denser form of energy, so provides more energy at source. This gives you a higher energy return on your investment and lifts the energy ceiling of the whole country. It has a very unpleasant set of byproducts. You need a lot of coal, which means surface digging isn't enough, so there need to be deep pits. As Hilt's law states, the better the quality of coal, the deeper it tends to be buried. The pits need an army of specialist miners and equipment. This results in land clearance for the pits and the transport. Industrial runoff is a nasty problem, since coal often has to be bathed at the pit to remove excess sulphur. The waste liquid is typically left in water pits and leaches into the groundwater to contaminate it. The process is very wasteful and can wash off up to 40% of the coal. Another byproduct is the enormous damage coal does when it's burnt. It releases a lot more smoke and soot. This includes things like sulfuric acids that eat into the lungs and the stonework. It also produces carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxides and various other pollutants. The nitrogen oxides can trigger smogs, asthma and other respiratory illnesses. The famous London fogs of the 19th century were often just a mix of toxic smoke and coal fires and local weather for all its initial benefits of being cheap and an incredibly dense energy source. It is dirty 
and damaging as a fuel. Of course, it has the longer term impact in triggering global warming and man-made climate change. In Britain, the early steam engines were very, very inefficient indeed. The original Newcomen engine was only 0.5% efficient and provided nothing more than a pumping action, usually for mines, generating a hefty 5 horsepower. That was incredible at the time. A machine that was doing the work of 5 horses, but it did allow mine owners just enough extra energy to make it worth them using the machines to clear water from the mines and move coal from the pitheads. This led to better forges and industrial processes, improving the nature of the coal and iron, leading to more efficient steam engines that could do more, improving industrial processes further and industrial forges in a virtuous cycle. The spinning jenny began to industrialise the weaving industry in the 1780s and the cotton gin in the USA meant that large quantities of raw cotton could be mass produced without needing slaves and exported to Britain to be finished. This had a key impact on people and also struck the southern USA's main reasons for the slave industry, or at least the economic ones. James Watt, the engineer, didn't invent the steam engine, but improvements in cannon boring technology allowed the technologies he needed to improve existing ones. His improvements and those of Bolton allowed a heady 15 horsepower output. By the late 1820s, efficiency was up to 17%. A major breakthrough was by Richard Trevithick, a Cornish mining engineer who invented a way to build a pressurised steam engine. He created the world's first steam locomotive, hauling an engine at an ironworks in Wales in 1804. As a side note, he also invented the first steam drill in 1813. He was a hugely important figure, did lots of interesting things, including using steam power for brass boring machines for better cannon, creating steamboats, steam dredges, various types of locomotive, threshing machines, which would eventually put the writing on the wall for horses and farm labourers in the long term, and a modern version of the ancient Greek steam engine invented by Hiron of Alexander. He also went to mine in South America, got involved in the wars for independence with Simon Bolivia, abandoned his wife to go exploring Costa Rica, then Colombia, before returning to England, nearly bankrupt, for the second time in his life. He built possibly the world's first water storage heater in 1830, supported the reform bill, tried to build a new turbine for a steamship, then died bankrupt and alone in a small hotel room in Dartford in 1833 to be buried in an unmarked grave. He had arguably changed the world, and the work he did would lead to the commercialisation and increased perfection of steam power in Victoria's early reign. Naturally enough, my school history textbooks relegated him to a paragraph 
before turning to their eternal love, crop rotation, which is totally important. And to all new farmers out there about to email me, I do get it. But honestly, to a 14-year-old at school, blokes in the equivalent of sheds, banging together strange new machines, with lots of fire, sometimes went bang, is a lot more interesting, especially if it involved people fighting in a revolution. There was now a growth in alternatives to farming as employment in Britain, and an agrarian revolution increased the calorie supply available. Oh God, the crop rotation again. Which in turn increased the amount of energy available as muscle power, other activities. Then, coal replaced muscle power in many areas, allowing the extra food energy to be reallocated elsewhere in the economy, plus giving a boost to some desperate people's diets. More food meant more muscles available. Steam engines hauling huge loads of coal, pumping floodwaters from mines, meant that muscles didn't have to haul those wagons, or manage the armies of pit ponies, or lift buckets of flood water. Mining could go deeper, or men could move into other roles. More calories helped with population growth, and gave Britain access to more military manpower. This manpower could be used to exploit natural resources overseas. By the 1830s, coal was being used to fire bricks, making them cheaper and more uniform, which revolutionised construction and sparked a building bonanza. I see repeated articles, podcasts and TV shows that talk about the genius of Roman engineering as if it was the greatest achievement in history. But the building and engineering revolution of Victorian times deserves just as much awe. With these new bricks, steam engines and engineers, feats of engineering were being performed that surpass the achievements of anything the Romans managed. Often it was far more utilitarian, just as amazing. The vast sewer system in London was the most advanced in human history. There were dozens of new aqueducts, like that in Elan Valley, or the stunning Clifton Suspension Bridge, a work of beauty as well as genius that is far beyond anything the Romans could have ever produced. This all led to more wealth, trade and food. UK-bound products were moving energy costs overseas too. Stuff made in Jamaica by slaves was stuff the United Kingdom didn't have to make at home. Although you should remember that even slaves cost energy. So the UK had to export some food to Jamaica. Trade became incredibly vital for the British government and economy. Industry lives and dies by trade. British imperial policy followed suit, especially in India, where trading posts became imperial footholds. The Australian colonies were seen as essential for opening up new farmland and removing the surplus criminal population. But don't be fooled into believing that the Australian colonies were only formed by convicts. They weren't, as you will see in future episodes. The USA began opening up new farmlands at the same time by aggressive migration into the interior, 
the USA began to lay the foundations of its own industrial system. It is especially notable that coal deposits were plentiful in central and northern England, but political power was heavily concentrated in London. This was because London remained a royal capital, but also a port city and a massive industrial hub in its own right. New machines could utilise water power in new ways, so the early industrial revolution was a mix of water and coal, but eventually it would become a steam revolution. Although France didn't fully recognise it, during the Napoleonic Wars, she was facing an enemy that was able to break the energy ceiling and leverage this to produce greater wealth and power. Europe couldn't know it either, but in the early years of the 19th century, Britain was gaining some decisive first mover advantages. Interestingly, the United States was also laying the foundations for her market revolution. Or put another way, if you are a Marvel fan like me, Britain had found her infinity stones. The ongoing industrial revolution was going to present both opportunities and serious problems. If you glance down the census records, or army records for the 1820s, 30s and 40s, you will see the occupation weaver appears fairly regularly. Weaving was a common trade. England especially built much of her economy on the wealth of the wool trade and weaving. Weaving was done up to then by men using a hand loom, often in rural areas. The men typically would sit at the frame of the loom in his house, using his foot pump to pump the pedals. Hours were long, and it was a genuine cottage industry. Wives and children sometimes supported the system by spinning and finishing. This technology had existed in some form for centuries. Then the Industrial Revolution began. New machines were introduced that shattered this world. Spinning yarn by hand in the old style was not competitive with the spinning jenny, perfected by Richard Arkwright in 1769, and then the introduction of power looms that made the old weaving frames obsolete. By 1835, power looms were so common that they were being depicted in art, often operated by women, as they were deemed cheaper and quicker than men. That should be great, right? The old, inefficient cottage system is replaced. Hard manual labour was replaced by more efficient machines that produced more cloth for less money. Costs of finished materials should fall, and everyone should benefit, right? The additional savings can be reinvested by capital owners who can channel capital into more productive activities so society and everyone benefits. Workers can find new roles and wages can purchase more. Sure, it was unpleasant for some of the workers in the factories, but over time, the whole society is richer. So it is a positive step. That's a fairly classic grand capitalist view of the economy. There were quite a lot of critics of this rosy picture. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. As you know on this podcast, like just taking a bird's eye view of things, I'd like us to zoom in and see what is really happening. First, 
I think we need to do some myth busting. Myth number one is that growth is the objective of a society or economy. The Georgians and early Victorians didn't plan economies in the way that we do today. For a start off, they didn't have the data or the tools to analyse an economy, nor did they believe in endless growth or progress as the period began. Remember, this was still at its heart an agrarian society with low literacy levels. The ruling class was aristocratic and tended to regard economics as a zero-sum game. This was especially true in international relations and trade. It was genuinely thought that the amount of wealth in the world was fixed, and for one nation to prosper, another had to fail. That wasn't entirely irrational, as there was a lot of economic theory that tied wealth to land. This presents significant problems, and leads almost inevitably to the economic theory of Malthusianism, the belief that population growth will always exceed resources, leading to famine and the dying off of the population, till temporary equilibrium is restored. The shift in mindset the Victorians went through was huge. They would come to see history as an endless march of progress, with British society and industry in the lead. Malthusianism also leads to another horrible but logically inevitable result. If wealth is fixed and comes from land or precious metals, then the only real way for a nation to become wealthy is either through taking the land or wealth of another nation or trading for it. Conquest or trade were seen as literally only ways to create wealth, and the denial of trade by another nation was seen as a hostile act. That is a nasty trap to fall into. If your population grows, it requires more wealth to have the same standard of living. If growth can't provide that, according to the economic theory of the day, and trade isn't providing enough, then only conquest can solve the issue. Plus, the bite to this kind of trap is if you don't conquer other places, another country might, you then get left behind. The more you fall behind, the harder it is to catch up. So the more likely you become to end up on the menu. Some statesmen of the 1820s and 1830s would probably have pointed to Spain as an example of a fallen empire whose wealth was being stripped away. The nightmare outcome of this is that as a leader of a nation, it would therefore be immoral for you not to seek out new territories to conquer. This in practice meant that economic policy was perversely intensely hands-off, yet often intensely militaristic. The philosophies of Adam Smith and David Ricardo were dominant, leading to a strong belief that not only would intervention in the market not be helpful, but it would actually trigger far worse disasters. Adam Smith believed the free market had a limit to the growth that could be achieved. He felt all economies had a natural ceiling. This worked out conveniently well for the ruling classes at first, since this philosophy doesn't require the proceeds of growth to be shared, but it would lead to disastrous famines, unemployment crises, 
all parts of the United Kingdom. Ireland is the most famous example, but nowhere in the UK was immune to famine or heavy levels of unemployment. Ultimate instability meant that the established political order couldn't survive, and society's huge levels of inequality tend to become either highly unstable or highly repressive. The second myth we need to bust now is the image I bet a lot of people have of the old rural life before the Industrial Revolution, that people were rosy-cheeked and smiling, and lived in villages where crops were plentiful. There was good ale and maypoles. Children played by the village duck pond, and simple folk lived in rustic cottages. Everything was pleasant, and everyone pitched in at harvest time. People rambled the lanes, and happy traders would come to towns on market day to sell clothes and utensils. There was fresh local food available to everyone before the days of industrial agribusinesses. Then came the evils of the Industrial Revolution, where people were forced into factories and cities, living a desperate existence that their yeoman farmer ancestors would have been horrified at. Ruskin and the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood would probably have agreed. There's a little truth in some of that, but it is a huge myth. Rural life in pre-industrial Britain was complex and diverse, relied on networks of landowners, rich tenant farmers, poor subtenant farmers, and the huge bulk of the rural population, the poor migratory farm labourer. This society was highly stratified, highly unequal, and most of the population actually lived in desperate poverty, even in a good year. Resources were scarce, and a bad harvest could mean starvation. Food availability and storage were significant challenges. Hierarchies were strict, and life was governed by the community rather than by the individual. Imagine then you were a cottage textile weaver. You depended on the meagre wages you make in a good year, perhaps substituted by a little farm labouring. Unfortunately for you, someone has decided to set up a new style factory to produce textiles. These textiles will mean more raw materials for clothes available more cheaply to be finished in a major town or city, perhaps 30 miles away. The factory will offer your wife and children work, but for less money. The Industrial Revolution relied heavily on female labour. Children were also highly useful to factory owners. They could crawl into small spaces and clear blockages or sweep up waste. Naturally, horrific injuries occurred. But since there was no health and safety legislation or any real kind of employment law, they were viewed by the mill owners as essentially disposable. I want you to pause and think about that for a moment. Imagine the children you might see playing in a park aged seven or eight. Now imagine deciding one of them can work in a factory if they get an arm torn off. Their wages will be docked for the stoppage, and then they will get kicked out into the street. When people complain, the factory owner tells them that he or she has a duty to the shareholders 
to maximise return on investment, and that there are plenty of other children who will be glad of the wage, psychology has to be at work to make that seem okay. Was it simply that the social standards of the time made it acceptable so that nobody minded? Or did the class structure mean there was expected that no one cared for people in a lower class level? Or was it just the wealth and power disparity that made the mill owners callous? Perhaps it is just that greed and the type of people who become rich are more likely to be psychopathic or highly callous. Some mill owners were aristocrats in the top rank, but most were prosperous middle class or lower upper class who were investing in the new factory systems. They didn't always manage it directly. They were often passed day-to-day running to overseers. This system strikingly replicates the slave economies of the Caribbean or of ancient Rome, but without the elements of chattel slavery or direct physical punishment. It must have been a very harsh transition from a weaver owning his own frame and working in a cottage. Even if he had only earned a little, it was his own business, and he probably knew the farmer from whom he rented his land and the others to whom he sold his wool. Still, don't get complacent as you listen to this podcast on your phone turn on the cheap lights in your home and relax in your cheap mass-produced clothes. Much of modern society relies on disposable human labour. It is just that modern Western nations have outsourced it to China, Africa or South America and pretended it doesn't exist. But it's there, digging up rare earth materials or making pennies an hour in a workshop for cheap clothes, or climbing the refuse heaps of electronics to strip out toxic parts for resale. Certainly, the Victorians had this on a larger scale and had to see it up close, but the suffering then and now existed, regardless of how easy it is for the rich West to see. How different is the upper-class Victorian lady sipping her tea with sugar in a mansion built on the profits of slavery from those of us now who own computers and clothes created by the exploitation of slave labour around the world or sweatshops? As you imagine yourself as that unemployed weaver, remember you will not be offered a replacement job easily. As a man, you would perhaps have been far too expensive perhaps far too old if you are over 40. Of course, if you are one of my lovely female listeners, perhaps instead of long-term unemployment, you would be faced with the agonising choice of whether to take work in a new factory or push your husband to make a move to somewhere with new opportunities. Factories were for the young in many ways, for the simple reason that only the young and fit could really survive them. This is a quote from mechanic Titus Robotham in 1801. It makes it clear how harsh the long-term conditions could be. Quote, I have seen three generations of operatives. I know men who are of my age, who have passed their lives in tenting the mule jenny. Their intellect is enfeebled and withered like a tree. 
They are more like grown-up children than the race of men I knew formerly. The long hours of laboured and the high temperatures in the factories produced a lassitude and an excessive exhaustion. The operatives cannot eat and seek to sustain life by the excitement of drink. End quote. That was the potential future if you had been lucky enough to get a job in a textile mill. A kind of living death, where the air hung heavy with fibres from the cotton, dust from the machines, choking your lungs, perhaps causing long-term medical conditions. Modern Austrian economists would say, well, that's the labourer's fault for not opening his own factory and competing. He is free not to engage in factory work. Of course, the alternatives of starvation or crime aren't real choices, so that kind of choice is definitely Hobson's choice. Price of individual liberty and all that? Maybe. Often, the young would flee the area, leaving an ageing population, ever-increasing rural poverty. So, you are still the imaginary male cotton weaver who needs to find alternative employment. Unfortunately for you, the local jobs were mostly taken as unemployment was already high. The population of labourers already hard hit by the poor harvests. So, there isn't as much farm work available. According to classic free market economics, you need to take advantage of those new textiles. So you should open up a shop and trade using new goods. Given that that was pricey, and required a degree of startup capital, I'm sure you can see that you might as well have dreamt of building a castle with a magic pantry. But you might get lucky. As a weaver, you would have been on a reasonable diet. So, you could have eaten more recently than most, and some of the labourers perhaps have starved to death before you. That might ease the pressure on some of those low-end labour jobs, or at least drive some of the more desperate men out of the area, you would need to make some serious decisions. During the Napoleonic Wars, the army provided a much better opportunity to get out. Then you can enlist and eat. Now, though, your area is flooded with unemployed ex-soldiers looking for work. Your youngest boy, aged five, is not complaining about being hungry much these days. He is just lying there in bed, not moving much. It won't be long till you lose him, but that will reduce the pressure on your wife and other children. They can go to work in the new factory, perhaps. Scenes like this happened regularly in rural England and Ireland. The climate disaster of 1816 had made things so much worse, but even in the good times, it was tough. Failing harvests drove up the price of bread. The ruling establishment refused to abolish the corn laws that fixed the price of grain high to protect rich landowners from imports. If you remember the episode on Peterloo, you will remember how much the Prince Regent was spending on debts, parties, redecoration, weddings, etc. The need for women to leave farms and cottage industries to get jobs in the factories was a potentially radical change. Suddenly, These women were paid a direct wage rather than just the male head of the household. 
Most of the money earned did end up pooled for the household use, but it was actually pretty radical. Many men complained bitterly they were being viciously undercut by women, leaving them in sustained unemployment as wages entered a race to the bottom. In a way, the patriarchal view of men requiring higher wages than women harmed both. Men became too expensive to employ, whilst women were forced to be cheap labour. Cheap labour, perversely, is also dangerous for capitalism, since it discourages investment. Why bother inventing a new machine and training people on it, or changing industrial processes, if labour is so cheap? You can just throw more people at the problems. If labour costs rise, suddenly the savings from investments can look a lot more attractive. As the Victorian era progressed, women increasingly owned the factories themselves. Mrs. Dogue, for instance, owned a factory in 1833 that employed 60 people. It is an absolute myth that Victorian women didn't work or couldn't own property. They absolutely did work. A lot. The misconception comes from the status of property when a woman married, and also from a long-standing failure to recognise unpaid domestic labour as work. At the moment she married, a woman's property was transferred to her husband, but if you discount married women, that still leaves a huge range of women who own property, whether unmarried, divorced or widowed. Poor Victorian women, whether married or not, worked as a matter of course to avoid starvation. Unemployment for a woman was the aspirational dream of the middle class and the expected status all of the upper classes, regardless of gender. In addition, many men married clever, ambitious women precisely to have a proper partner, one who could help them both rise as a family unit. They would happily legally own aspects of a business, but leave elements of it to the wife to run on a day-to-day basis. Women laboured in the home with a lot of domestic tasks as well. When social attitudes forced greater workplace protections, it often meant workers transferred unregulated activities in the home, perhaps like matchstick making or umbrellas. Reciprocal payment was pretty routine for many women's roles. A couple of hours childcare for a friend in exchange for an extra egg once a week, or doing a neighbour's washing whilst they repaired some shoes. I'd like you to bear in mind then that the early women's rights movement was mainly about the right to be paid equally or the right to vote. It was rarely about the right of a woman to work per se, except for the fight to enter the professions. In some ways, early to mid-Victorian periods were more open to women working than the Edwardian and interwar periods, and perhaps even more than the 1950s in some ways. I'm just skimming the surface of a complex issue here, and we will revisit these themes proper detail in future episodes. So please, if you listen to this show, don't say that Victorian women either didn't work or didn't own property, because they did. They were a cornerstone 
of the Industrial Revolution. The political establishment was well aware of the problems. They were desperately concerned that the bulk of the population might revolt or demand political reform, or even worse, ask for more money from the state. This ran directly counter to the economic philosophy of the time when dealing with the poor. One view was that the poor must have brought it on themselves through idleness, drink or lawless conduct. Another view was that poverty was a good thing since it allowed cheap goods to be produced by cheap labour, which made exports more competitive, helping the balance of trade. This in turn benefited the upper classes, who began to receive fabulous returns on investments, returns that could be used to buy political influence, and this in turn could be used to buy up land from debt-ridden farmers, increasing the land holdings of the rich, and forcing more people into poverty, and thence to the factories or mines. This was a view that remained entrenched throughout much of the Victorian period. If you remember my show on Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you will know that he railed against this kind of judgmental complacency for most of his career. Of course, the harder-line economists, the 1820s and 1830s, felt that the poor would always exceed the food supply, and the best thing to do was to let them die off so that the productive poor didn't have to share their food with the unproductive poor. This philosophy was one of the reasons why Queen Victoria absolutely hated the Tories in her first years as Queen. If you had been that weaver, you would have had very few choices left. You could have tried the Navy if you lived near a port, or the Merchant Navy. At least there might be a signing-in bonus. I suppose some listeners at this point probably thinking, yes, but there must have been other jobs. People didn't just starve to death. Well, they did. There are some graphic woodcuts showing labourers who have starved to death in ditches. You might be wondering about some kind of poor relief. While technically the parish had to support the poor in some form, that was patchy, very, very limited at best. There are plenty of examples. Authors like Dickens, Harriet Martineau, George Eliot, Elizabeth Gaskill, Henry Mayhew and Charlotte Bronte all have hunger as themes in their works. Disraeli was scandalised by it and wrote Sybil, or The Two Nations, to describe the horrid food inequality between rich and poor. Everyone noted the excessive eating of the rich, and Disraeli sharply criticised it. If food is a unit of energy, then the rich were getting far more than they needed, whilst the people who required the energy to do the work simply weren't getting enough. Not that it was something all the rich worried about. There's a passage in Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre, where headmaster Mr Brockwood expresses the view of the rich about getting good food. Quote, You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Oh, madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burnt porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile bodies, but you little think how you starve their immortal souls. 
End quote. Now there was a man who had a clear vision for the school and its values. His hypocrisy and love of food and luxury were pointed out by Charlotte Bronte. When researching the poor working class for her first novel, she spoke to a family and tried to comfort them at some point, and she was asked by one working class mother if she had ever seen a child starve to death. Once you start knowing the background to a lot of the great novels, you can see them less as standalone character-driven works and see them for what they often were, the shout of a lot of angry men and women who used their creative writing talents to slam the social deprivation they saw all around them. The surplus energy of the Industrial Revolution developed the technology and wealth to allow these writers to exist and demand change. This wasn't entirely welcomed. An early review of Jane Eyre called it anti-Christian, chartist, anti-authoritarian, anti-religious, and a dangerously revolutionary work. But in works like North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, a new philosophy of class war was beginning to appear, one where the old class structures and habits of deference began to be rubbed up against a new kind of class war, the war between labour and capital, between owner and worker. The Industrial Revolution was soon going to give birth to the philosophies of a new working class, and also of Engels and then Marx. Class became not just a hierarchy, but began to be a more flexible concept, and one that could start to become more contentious. Utopian philosophies and socialists vied against capitalists, free market traders and imperialists. The old aristocracy had to deal with the influx of men from trade, as they were sneeringly called. The north of England began a journey to a different culture and economy to the south. Self-denial as an aesthetic choice was a virtue preached by the rich and the church to maintain order, whereas the poor were concerned with where the next meal was coming from. They were incredibly sensitive to changes in price, since food price inflation is highly regressive. Yet the new mill owners and capitalists were not easy allies of the new labouring class, but nor were they allies of the old aristocracy and the gentry. Perhaps the real question we ought to be asking is not why Britain had an industrial revolution, but why didn't Britain have a French-style revolution? That's a complex question, and could be a career for a PhD holder in its own right. Mostly, Britain suffered from a fairly rigid class structure, controlled borders, a ruthless aristocracy who had access to one of the most efficient states in Europe, a military that post-Waterloo was at its peak, and was repeatedly used to put down any hint of rebellions. The British military never wavered in its loyalty to the state, unlike the pre-revolutionary French military. Britain also had the crucial outlet overseas colonies it could exploit. Transportation to Australia was used with enthusiasm to ship out protesters, non-conformists, criminals, or just the desperate poor. The early 19th century British state was ruthless, 
repressive, and had an incredible military to put down protests. The growing British middle class was gaining industrial wealth in a way that was different from the pre-revolutionary French middle class. So they were more at odds with the working class. Men must be governed, was a recognised sentiment of the kind uttered by mill owner Mr Thornton in the book North and South. Yet Margaret retorts to him in the same book that no one builds a business alone and that, quote, you are a man dealing with a set of men over whom you have, whether you reject the use of it or not, immense power. Just because your lives and your welfare are so constantly and intimately interwoven, God made us so that we must be mutually dependent. We may ignore our independence or refuse to acknowledge that others depend upon us in more respects than the payment of weekly wages, but the thing must be nevertheless. Neither you nor any other master can help yourselves. End quote. The cultural mentality of the English was, and still probably is, especially conservative and subservient. Northern pride and working class solidarity were growing. On top of that was the safety valve of empire, the promise of land and food overseas. In India, New Zealand, Canada, or Ceylon, or many other places. A mythic out there, where the hungry could feast, if only they had the will to ruthlessly seize the opportunity. The energy provided by the Industrial Revolution gave the British the boost needed for expansion, consolidation and extraction. The market created new jobs. The railways were desperate for legions of men to cut trees, clear land, lay track, build and maintain engines, work the signals, repair the lines. Engineers became first important, then megastars. Science, especially metallurgy and chemistry, was given a turbo boost. Don't forget, what I'm giving you here is a sketch of the first ripples as the great industrial change spread out. And that ripple was going to eventually become a tidal wave of change that would spread out across the world. The effects of the Industrial Revolution were massive population growth and the mass migration from country to city, from small cottage industries to the multinational corporations and the enormous wave of migrants fleeing England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, all desperate to get away from the poverty and rigid class structure of the UK and try their luck somewhere else, whether that was in the melting pot of New York City or the dangers of the Oregon Trail, or the gold mines, Ballarat, or helping build the empire in India or in the wars in New Zealand. The disruption and desperation forced millions of poor out of the UK and into leaky wooden ships to seek opportunities somewhere, anywhere else. They would encounter pre-existing societies and people, sometimes integrating well or creating new societies, other times launching into conflict and committing genocide or murder, enabled by the powerful weapons and supply systems created by the Industrial Revolution. Expansion 
in various areas of the Indian subcontinent brought a lot of looted wealth back to the UK. But it also provided opportunities to trade and invest. This was a novel change to the economic orthodoxy. It began to be thought that perhaps wealth could be grown as well as exploited. This in turn drove demand for technical changes as technology, science, engineering and practical labour knowledge achieved symbiosis and interdependency. More energy was needed to open up new areas for development or exploitation. The electric drill of the 1860s, for example, was a response to the demands complex engineering but required knowledge from miners, engineers, metal workers, scientists and more. As President Obama rightly said, you didn't build that. No technology, no company, no individual can build in isolation. The Industrial Revolution was not the creation of a few geniuses. Instead, it was the transformation of the ordering of a civilization. And that's what civilization is. The rejection of the myth of the individual and the pooling of resources and knowledge to achieve through collective action. It was often unpleasant, murderous, damaging to individual freedoms and often deeply fractious. But the coming together of the engineers, manufacturers, labourers, the soldiers, the merchants, the ships and the farmers in turn created the soil for the growth of these new technologies. Britain avoided her revolution. She also gained immense benefits from industrialization, even if they were unevenly distributed. Her economy was experiencing the effects of real growth. Mass markets were coming into being. Most immediate effect, though, was on transportation and food overcame and the poverty and difficulties I've talked about today, even if it was a slow process. Britain was taking one of the most remarkable industrial leaps in the world. Steam engines had existed throughout history. The ancient Greeks had them as toys. The Chinese certainly had both the coal reserves and the central state that could have created a railway. But the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese and the other civilizations didn't create the railways or use the steam engines to mine coal. Instead, it was the British that recognised the unique opportunity, the application of the principles of steam engines to practical power. The railways were born and spreading across the world. Whilst Victoria was growing up alone at Kensington, Britain was seeing the growth of the world's first railway network. It would transform everything. They were the next earthquake. Suddenly humans could move at speed. Food could get from the coast and the farms into the cities far more quickly. Humans could now move at a speed beyond the natural world. The other potential changes from the steam engine were immense. In 1807, the USA made an important breakthrough when Fulton's ship, Clement, the first successful steamboat ever built, ran up the Hudson. It would be a vision of the future that foretold the end of the age of sail. Their lordships at the Admiralty took careful note, often with horror, but the Royal Navy 
would have to deal with the coming age of steam, and they would be transformed almost beyond recognition. Scotland also had to deal with the transformative effects. The Scottish lowlands were turning into hives of industry, supported by a scientific and engineering class of Scottish intellectuals. For a long time, it looked like the future of Scotland would be a depopulated highland region, shunned as a backwater, whilst the more prosperous lowlands adopted the model of the English industrial north. Victoria and Albert would do a lot to change that, ironically, as would the Scottish commitment to imperialism. The Industrial Revolution had a huge impact on Wales too. Canals were dug, the vast coal industry and mining culture was born. The struggle for Welsh identity in an industrial age began. Ireland was also hit by the power of the railways. In population terms alone, the Industrial Revolution and railways have a huge impact as casual Irish labour moved to building works around the UK. I'm hoping you can now begin to see how titanic the changes caused by the Industrial Revolution and the steam engine really were. Just about the entire economic structure of the UK was being changed. The energy from coal was making its way into the very bloodstream of the British. Okay, we've covered quite a lot now, so I think this is a good place to pause. It's nearly Christmas, which is my favourite holiday of the year. So there will be a Christmas special. Hopefully, this will be on the 24th of December, but it might be a couple of days early. There will be no show on the 1st of January. Instead, there will be a mini-sode at some point in January 2020. The next full episode will be on the 1st of February with the early railways. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you will know it is a subject I'm very interested in. I've had some lovely reviews from listeners recently. Firstly, Evan WM has given me a five star. Great presentation of fascinating history. Thank you, Evan. Rob C has also given me a five star. It's a really touching, updated review. I have listened to The Age of Victoria from the start and thought it about time to update my review. This podcast is like the most luxurious red, ages so wonderfully. Chris's research is of an academic standard. The pacing is on piste and clear. He adds just enough expression to feel like one is listening to a story. Above all, Chris brings out the human insights into the age. It has reminded me to look for the human in my areas of personal research. For me, this makes the narrative come alive, whether dealing with lords and ladies, the struggling poor, or a soldier on the battlefield. Age of Victoria has come to me to represent podcasting at its highest level, definitely in my top five. I wish Chris a long podcasting career. Thanks, Rob. That's absolutely lovely. I've really enjoyed hearing from listeners and finding them having new interests sparked by the show. Rob has been a long-time supporter and patron. He's also a font of historical knowledge, so I'm delighted he has such a high opinion of the show. I do hope to have a long podcasting career, After all, we are only just getting to the 1840s, but we've managed to cover 
the entire Industrial Revolution, almost, at least the key bit of it for the early Victorian period, in one show. Next review was from Linda Mock, 5 star. I am so happy to have found this podcast. Actually covers several years before and after Victoria's reign, providing background and aftermath of this pivotal time in history. Mr. Fernandez Packham, the author, can dive into wonderful rabbit holes like gin in the Victorian era or an examination of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, all as sidebars to historical events. In addition, his voice is by far the best of all the podcasts I listen to. Thank you, Linda. That's very kind, and I'm completely blushing. And finally, Victor England, five star, a pleasant voice, and good information. Thank you, Victor. Okay, finally for today, I was recently interviewed by podcaster Noah Tetzner for a new podcast on the Victorians. Noah is the podcast producer for the Circe Institute Podcast Network. The network is made up of several historical-themed podcasts, though in the process of releasing a new show titled Victoria's World. Their podcast will provide knowledgeable insight into Britain's age of global influence and domination. I thought it was a good opportunity to bang the drum for the Victorians and chat to a friend about the topic. To be clear, I'm not affiliated with Circe and I wasn't paid for the appearance. The views expressed during the interview are my own. It's a short one and I'll post the link once it is released. Hopefully, you will all enjoy it. Okay, join me next time for our Christmas special and then in our next big episode it will be the next of our earthquakes, the birth of the railways. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.